Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman Captain David Campbell, and today I'll be speaking with your MEC Chairman Will McQuillan and your MEC Vice Chairman Captain Joe Youngerman. A lot has occurred in the last week and we have uh, a number of topics to discuss as what I'm sure is on most folks' mind is the position bid results, rumors of furlough, and the fact that the company pulled out of the MOU 2004, commonly known as the COVID protection MOU. Before we get into all of that, let's answer a question that we often get about the bid process in general, which is what takes so long? And this one in particular, it was open two weeks ago. Sorry, it closed two weeks ago, and and just today we're getting the results. Yeah, I, I know. You talk about things that seem counterintuitive in the automated age, but believe it or not, David, the way that these position bids are processed here at Alaska Airlines, it's a manual process, completely manual. And uh, that process, by the way, is owned by the company. So they've elected for many years not to make that investment in IT resources to automate it, even though that's obviously an option as it's done at other properties. But uh, I think maybe to understand a little bit of the behind the scenes from the time that the the bid closes, there's a couple of days in which uh, Diane has to process and format the bid for that manual processing, one to two days of actual processing of the bid, and then uh, a fair amount of time just uh, error checking it and auditing it and then of course a company going through and trying to allocate the training resources appropriately for the bid which was um, one of our biggest concerns with this bid was CBA compliance of course uh, in particular how that training was allocated because this is a really as you said it's a big bid and it's a reduction bid and there's a lot of moving pieces to it and so we had definite concerns about how they were going to allocate this training. And specifically, we had concerns about how the, the pilots from that canceled May bid might be handled in this mix. I mean, there really is no defined training footprint for people who were three-quarters complete, partially complete with their training. And, you know, genuine concerns that the training could be completed in the allotted timeline. Uh, as you know, we felt internally that they, they really needed to have an effective date of December 1st in order to be able to fit all the training that's going to be required by this bid into the footprint that they had. So I think it's probably most important. Maybe we'll just start with a reminder for the pilots when they're looking over these bid results and if they're headed to training to uh, reference the appropriate CBA section, which is, uh, let's see here, 11A4 of the contract. Right. And I, you know, I've got that right in front of me. So let me just read it so people can have that in their mind while we're having the rest of this discussion. So initial upgrade, transition, or variant training will be accomplished as much as possible in seniority order based on the needs of the company. Pilots in seniority order may defer initial upgrade or transition training, but shall not defer such training if it causes a more junior pilot to lose his scheduled vacation. Yeah, we know that there are senior pilots, uh, they're going to be awarded in this bid who may want to defer their training until after summer, which is perfectly understandable. Uh, pilots who feel they were not handled in accordance with the CBA are encouraged to reach out to the reps and, and we, of course, will look into it. Um, when you take a look at the human aspect of, of this bid, and these are approximate numbers, uh, we're looking at roughly 26 pilots involuntarily downgraded. 
50 pilots forced to change equipment, 40 pilots forced to change domiciles, and that's important to provide some context to that, and that 40, uh, 40 bid their own equipment first. It's obvious to us the company needed, and, and as we have said, additional vacancies, uh, redu reductions to reduce the involuntary impact of the bid. This was communicated to them ahead of time. It's e equally obvious that the company needed more captain vacancies if they wanted to avoid more forced moves. Yeah, and, and sadly, it's also obvious that despite repeated cautionary warnings, many pilots still didn't have a complete defensive bid on file. Um, ultimately, there were a few pilots who found themselves reduced in accordance with its 24E6 of the contract, um, and that placed may have placed them in a, a place that they didn't anticipate at all at the end of this process. I can't stress enough that you've got to have a strategy to protect yourself in a full defensive bid. Indeed. Well, this particular bid has a peculiarity, and I have to say, I, I've been here going on 18 years, and I've never really seen anything like this, that I was surprised to see this bid included a cover letter that stated, and I'll just quote here, there is a high likelihood this bid will be canceled prior to any training beginning, unquote. What on earth do you make of that? As you said, David, I what coming up on 14 here, and I'm stunned. I mean, I've been part of the membership committee since I started Alpa work back in 2008, and until this year, I have not seen a bid cancel, much less two potentially cancel, in one year. You know, as Joe said, the human impact of these reduction bids is very, very real, and. Casually mismanaging them just demonstrates a complete lack of competence and empathy, you know? Yeah, there's a handful of explanations that would underlie the decision to cancel this bid. But every single one, and I mean every single one, was something Alpa has warned them about. Remember that we were only given three hours notice of this bid, and yet we took the time to warn them. We warned them that this would cost more than they thought. And if you follow the contract, the training footprint seemed awfully optimistic given the amount of training that needed to occur, which seemed to be news to them. Um, they needed more vacancies to mitigate the human toll and more vacancies in California to in avoid all the involuntary displacements. Yep, I mean, exactly, Joe. And, and I'm genuinely concerned that what we're seeing here is a floundering in the face of one of the most challenging times that the industry's seen. You know, while other airlines seem to be moving deliberately and pragmatically with a checklist, we just seem to be throwing switches and randomly pulling T-handles to, to see what the impact is. And I will tell you that if they do cancel this bid, it is my firmest expectation that we need to see a plan. Okay. Now, assuming the bid does continue the way that it's been published, one positive consequence to that is that a furlough should they want one, couldn't occur before December 1st, right? Yep, no, that, that's correct, that if the bid stands as published, you can't have a bid with an effective date earlier than one that's already been awarded. And so in that case, as we're saying, the, the furlough bid would have to be effective on December 1st or later. Um, but that does make sense because, as we've said, you really do need to see summer demand of 2021 before really being able to furlough pilots. And it does bring up the point that 
if their intention in publishing this really conditional language around the bid is that they intend to forecast a furlough or that the company intends to bring up a furlough earlier, that canceling this bid, unfortunately, does change that timeline a little bit. But regardless, if they cancel this bid and they change the timeline, uh, some things don't change. And to review, a furlough would have to be forecast, and then under Section 23 of the CBA, there's a number of formal furlough mitigation efforts um, that are, are called for, and those programs must play out. And then a final number of pilots to be furloughed is established, and a reduction bid with no vacancies, i.e. a furlough bid, is run, and that bid would have to post, you know, uh, again with those timelines. So it could, in, in effect, I guess, if the company wants it that way, be before December 1st if they cancel this bid. So that's some of the details about this particular bid. Let's step back from that and talk about furlough in just in general terms. It seems like an update is always worthwhile. And as we said on the last podcast, we are in a bit of a eye of a storm kind of situation in that we have knowledge now about what other carriers are doing, a little bit of a sense of how the coronavirus is, is shaking out. And there's widespread feeling that things don't look good, but also no details yet. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of what we don't know right now. There's, you know, and anyone who says they know how this is going to play out is is just not <laughs> is not true being truthful. You know, this is a time where, you know, there are a lot more questions than they are answers. And it's an easy time for people to play on their fears. And, and some people will do this for self-importance and to cause disharmony in the ranks, and uh, which is very unfortunate because uh, that kind of behavior serves management. It certainly doesn't serve the pilot group. Uh, when you refer back to some of the old uh, union-busting tactics that uh, management uses, um, we saw some of this during the merger process between Virgin America and Alaska, that uh, management will always try to exploit the opportunity to drive a wedge uh, between pilots. And we, we always say that unity is our greatest strength, and that's not just rhetoric, it's a fact. We can't pursue our goals successfully when we're fighting amongst ourselves or even just apathetic about uh, what's going on. Uh, Winston Churchill said, when there is no enemy within, enemies outside cannot hurt you. And that's very true. These are people that want to undermine your union. People don't have your best interests in mind. Your MEC was elected by you. We serve only you. And we'll always fight for your best interests in a clear and transparent manner without any sort of agenda on our own part. We've survived these unity dividers in the past, and we will survive this too. These are crude tactics and clearly visible to those of us who have lived through recessions, two Gulf Wars, 9-11, the financial meltdown, and now this. When management sees an opportunity to take back gains by labor, they will always exploit the opportunity to the maximum degree possible. It's what they're paid to do, and it's what they're rewarded for by our shareholders and our board of directors. There's no doubt our industry and the world are facing serious economic challenges today, but like all other events, this too shall pass. We must be sure our response is thoughtful, measured, 
and in the best interests of this pilot group. We have been through three emotional events over the past four years with the merger, JCBA, and the SLI. We as a group have emerged with the strongest number in recent history, and that was only accomplished through our unity. Industry experts, ALPA national leadership, and others thought that our two pilot groups would struggle to remain unified through the merger process. They believed it because history predicted it. This pilot group proved that with laser focus on unity, we can not only successfully merge, but emerge actually stronger than we were before. Nothing has changed. We will continue to support each other while insisting our contributions to the success of Alaska Airlines be recognized by management. Yeah, I think Joe kind of called it because we've seen in 2008 as far as navigating a crisis and and rumors and unity, um, people peddle all kinds of rumors and fear is certainly in play when we're in a situation like this and that that's never good. Back in 2008, one of the greatest offenders on the peddling either furlough numbers or, or fear was actually Greg Soretsky himself wandering onto flight decks and, and getting everybody all spun up. Yeah, and even earlier than that, prior to what ended up being the Kasher arbitration, same thing, all kinds of, of comments about numbers, pace rates that the company was passing over and supposedly the union was saying no to, but none of those things were language that could be looked at or voted on, just just rumors floating out there in, among the pilot group. And, and it's designed purposefully, as you say, to cast doubt on union leadership, to cast doubt on the decisions that are being made on behalf of pilots. And it's it's an old, tired technique. But unfortunately, if you don't combat it, it can be effective. And so that's why we're bringing it up here. We, we need to be aware of these techniques that are out there so that we don't fall prey to them. Yeah, the appropriate course, of course, when you hear things is just to reach out to your reps. I mean, there's a commitment to transparency that exists, and it's really strong here. And if, if people want to know what's going on, we're as far away as a phone call. Reach out to your reps, and, and you'll have the true scoop on what's going on. That's right. You know, you, we've all heard the expression, in confusion there is profit, and, and management will certainly take advantage of pilot confusion and anxiety to prey on those fears and, and to uh, exploit them to their greatest extent. So it's very important that pilots remain informed and trust, you know, go to trusted sources for your information. We have always been honest and transparent and we'll continue to be that way going forward. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. So speaking of knowledge and lack of confusion, what are the things we know now? Well, specifically, uh, when people are focused on furlough and furlough rumors, uh, we do know that the company is continuing to use a consulting firm to evaluate the industry and what demand looks like uh, in this fall is one touch point and next summer and what the airline's threats and possible opportunities are. And likewise, we're continuing to do the same in daily updates from ALPA economic finance and analysis. And uh, we know and senior management knows that what matters most is what demand looks like next summer, not this fall. It makes no sense to furlough in the fall just to recall in the spring. And remember that I think we're going to hear a lot about how bad things look in the fall. And while demand may look ugly in the fall, 
Remember, furlough is a long-term solution and not part of their short-term cash focus. Uh, I will say that what they've presented to us uh, so far has been best case, worst case, and mid case for industry demand. Again, demand, not headcount. I mean, nothing that we've heard as far as this topic of demand surprises us. It, it truly cross checks with what we're hearing from ALPA, EFNA. And what we're waiting on is for them to make a determination on how headcount fits into that demand scenario. Yeah. And I have to say, it's a little concerning watching management act and react. And based on what I see in this erratic behavior around these bids and the one just prior to it, it's that it seems like anxiety on their part is translating into the urge to just do something instead of, you know, how we might approach an emergency or caution situation in the cockpit of winding our watch, evaluating the situation fully, gathering the information we need, and then making a decision. I mean, nothing good comes from fear-based or anxiety-based decisions, right? Yeah, anxiety should never underpin action. And, you know, if we take that 30,000-foot view and look at it, the company's got good liquidity, and they're building even more. And I would tell you that what they need to be evaluating is what kind of a buffer that they might want to retain in order to recover quickly if demand picks up. You know, as uh, Joe has often said, all it takes is a successful vaccine and the landscape of recovery changes quickly. And do remember that uh, Section 23 also takes away much of the, the staffing flexibility as a means of mitigating furlough. So they need to be thinking and considering that a post-furlough staffing model doesn't work today. They can't simply throw premium pay at trips. They also need to kind of take a look at what kind of opportunities exist that might exist. There's new flying, different flying. I do see that in narratives from some of the other chairmen. I know other airlines are looking at different ways to make money in this landscape. Um, and that kind of also points to the fact that the company really does have to consider what the competitive landscape is evolving into. How is it changing as a result of others cutting their networks. So, you know, remember that Delta and United and American are kind of forced by fleet complexity to make these decisions way earlier. And if you look, you'll also see that there have been no reduction bids or furloughs announced, firm commitments to furlough by Southwest, Spirit, or JetBlue. Narrow body domestic carriers just like us. Anyway, they've promised us an update in early June. Uh, I'm not going to be overly optimistic nor pessimistic, just skeptical to ensure that they've considered all those those factors. Well, I want to ask you to reiterate some things that I know you've said on these podcasts before, but they're kind of your position, things that you've communicated very clearly to management. If, would you just sort of enumerate what those have been? Uh, yeah, I think it always bears mentioning the things that we have consistently said to the most senior management at this company as far as our expectations when it comes to navigating the landscape ahead. And uh, some of that is is that when they have a number, they, as far as staffing goes, when they have a number, we expect it to be communicated to us. We do not want it circulating within flight ops for three, four, five days, and we find out through backdoor channels. And I have a commitment that when they know something, they will tell us. And uh, when we have a firmer picture on staffing, we will tell the pilots. 
the only thing that stands between the time frame when uh, I'm informed or the MEC is informed of a potential furlough is the need to brief the MEC fully on what we've been told. And as we just said, the need to have EF&A or economic finance and analysis go and evaluate the business case behind that projection. And then we'll communicate it immediately to the pilots. But uh, maybe more specifically what you were talking about, or some of the things that we've said is that, you know, we expect a full mitigation effort on any potential furlough. Uh, per Section 23, it's got to include an early out option, as well as an expectation that if Horizon or SkyWest are growing, that jobs will be available to an Alaska furloughee. Our CVA has standalone mitigation language to deal with a furlough threat, and I'll be very clear that we're not interested in concessionary CVA changes with furlough being some type of an excuse. In fact, I, I really do want to drive home that point. One of the more common questions that we get from pilots is around how we would need to amend our CVA in order to mitigate a potential furlough threat. And to be clear, the existing prescribed measures in Section 23 of our contract, when fully implemented, provide substantial relief to mitigate a furlough. We've modeled it. We know what it's capable of, and it doesn't require concessionary bargaining of our CBA. Yeah, that's good to know. And if I could kind of summarize that in my own words, kind of what I'm hearing, I think, is that the the case for furlough is based on a projected need down the road, not on some vague means to control costs or bring costs down. And so you want to see that they've done all of those steps to, to mitigate the concern about a staffing model, not not a costing model. Yeah, exactly. And the, that staffing model has to encompass what EF&A has told us time and time again are controlling factors, important things to consider. As we said, the competitive landscape and some of the other changes to make sure that it's an accurate, refined number and not some type of uh, a cost-driven number. So you'll hold the company's feet to the fire that what we're negotiating and talking about is based on reality. That's always been our expectation. That's correct. And that's why we do cross-check what we do here from the company with our own independent experts. One of the things I think is worth communicating is that we are not going to jump at a threat of uh, the sky is falling and we need you to make concessions so that we don't have to furlough a, a lot and we need to get to this sort of. And, and that that's the point that I'm making is that we don't, that, that earlier piece about Section 23, I think that this thing is fully mitigatable within the current CBA. And they don't, I mean, they will still be clear. They're going to come in and do a song and dance about costs during the fall. And, you know, I don't know. It is, the point that I would make is that if they have a need in the fall, it's totally separate from Section 23 furlough mitigation. Um, furlough has to do with next summer. And if they have a problem in the fall and it's pro-pilot and it's something we can advance the pilot's interests in, then Okay. You know, like more of the incentive lines, right? The pilots like that. Mm -hmm. There are ways that we can control costs that are very pro-pilot. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, an imperative on our part that we somehow, you know, take a, a concessionary stance on the CBA just to correct uh, a cost concern of theirs. Right. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's let's move on to another frustrating element, which is the company's decision to withdraw from MOU 2004 
which we commonly talk about as the COVID-19 protection MOU. And, you know, it's particularly frustrating to me. I want to talk about it in these terms for a moment because for the last two years or so at least, I mean, all through the JCBA negotiations and, and when we started the Safeguard Our Future campaign, a lot of what we were stressing during that time is the benefit of having the two parties, ALPA and management, come together, work together, and and be willing to be bound by mutually beneficial agreements, agreements that are contained in either CBA language or an MOU or an LOA. And I think that this MOU was a perfect example of how that works well. I agree, David. This, you know, this MOU was really science-based. It was logic-based. It just made a lot of good common sense. It was designed to protect pilots during this pandemic and to protect uh, the business as well, quite frankly. Specifically, one of the key provisions was to protect a pilot who had not tested positive yet but was required to quarantine by a, by their physician, maybe a, a qualified medical professor, the uh, or prof- excuse me, professional, the CDC, local department of health or other government agencies by not requiring and, and not requiring them to burn their sick leave. In other words, make sure that a pilot who might be at risk doesn't feel compelled to come to work and possibly infect other people because he doesn't have any sick time left in his in his sick balance. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, another key component was to simplify cancellation language of the CBA and preclude, preclude pilots who had a trip cancel with multiple duty periods from sitting multiple periods of contactability. Because really nothing, nothing comes, nothing good comes from forcing a pilot to sit in a hotel or a crash pad uh, and risk more exposure during a global pandemic. That just makes sense, right? And, you know, the company in exchange uh, got uh, more flexibility to respond to a rapid schedule pull down with the need for large number of close-in cancellations. So it was, you know, it was beneficial for them as well. So, yeah, this was a, a great example of an agreement that uh, should have been beneficial for both parties, made a lot of sense, and uh, was based on good science. Right, exactly. And that's that's a lot of the point I was trying to make. They had a problem. They had an issue, and so did we. And and their issue was that they were facing an April schedule that was based on the way things looked prior to COVID. And, and you know, we recognized that that was a problem and came together to work out those mutual solutions. And we also knew that the problems we were solving for April would be different than the problems we would solve for subsequent months. And so we added to the MOU, which is common for MOUs, the ability for management to come back and renegotiate, to walk away from the MOU or to let it continue um, or to renew on a monthly basis. And and now we're back into their same MO, which is when it's not working for them, they just make unilateral decisions, put what they want to keep into an FOM rather than into language that they're bound to in a mutual agreement with us. And I find that frustrating. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and they came you know, to socialize the changes they wanted to see 
in the MOU, as you just said, that it does evolve, language changes, and they approached with uh, some changes they wanted to see that just weren't acceptable to the MEC. Uh, for example, a limit to the previously mentioned quarantine period of 14 days. They wanted it to be 14 days, which they claim is the quote-unquote medically accepted period for quarantine. And I think we've seen firsthand that 14 days is not quite the right timeline for all pilots. So the MEC rejected it. And a return to the like existing cancellation language of the CBA found in Section 25U, which requires additional contactability periods throughout the original trip footprint. And that's all despite having excessive reserve coverage, reserves who they profess they have concerns about maintaining currency. It would just seem to make sense to maintain the, the existing language, let a reserve pick up that flying when a trip cancels, and allow the person who potentially has a commute or a multi-day trip to go ahead and deal with the cancellation provisions that we had negotiated. Uh, I, but I guess the, the key point here isn't necessarily the changes that they were seeking, but ultimately the unilateral manner in which they were imposed, right? Right. I agree. I agree. I just, you know, when you look at the reserve uh, currency issue and, and the number of reserves they've got and the coverage that they have, this, this decision just really sort of defied logic. The MEC identified that the changes that they were seeking weren't acceptable to you, the pilots, and they did it anyway, um, claiming that they needed the full flexibility in particular of Section 25U to cover the flying. And I'll let you judge that statement based on the number of reserves that we see out there and the amount of flying that they're doing. And juxtapose this against the reality that your MEC found a way to demonstrate flexibility and protect your interests in crafting these MOUs. So as frustrating as that is, they have decided to exit the agreement. And so what do we know going forward? Yeah, I think that with the new reality, I would encourage pilots in advance of June 1st, obviously, to review Section 25U of the CBA and be sure that you understand your rights in the changed landscape. In particular, note that absent the MOU now, pilots can once again elect alternate trip makeup. And this provision of 25U may provide you the flexibility that you need if a trip is canceled instead of being contactable on the company's terms. Um, we do continue to receive uh, questions on a couple of issues. And uh, again, this applies to, to things now. So pilots need to remember, there's no need to acknowledge a contact from scheduling on a day off. And there's no requirement to report earlier than your previously scheduled trip. And when it comes to ele electronic notification, uh, again, ALPA has never been a fan of that. Uh, this is not a negotiated means of contact, and there is risk in using it. I think we've seen that. You don't know exactly what the changes are that are buried in that acknowledgement. So, uh, oddly enough, I should point out that one of the concerns raised uh, during this MOU discussion was around pilots' erratic use, they say, of electronic notification. And again, there's just there's no need to use electronic notification. Make sure that you understand exactly what changes are baked into uh, to your trip before you accept it. And uh, by the way, if you do sit contactability periods under Section 25U, remember, you're not a reserve. 
you're not on a two-hour call-out. So uh, in, in general, as we always say, study that CBA, and then if you have questions, pick up the phone and talk to contract compliance. This section of the contract is something that they're very well-versed in and happy to walk you through. All right, Will, what lies ahead for the MEC in June? Now, our, our focus in the next few months, and, and not just June, is on things that matter to the pilots. Uh, we've noted it a few times today, but even if the company seems lost without a plan, like we've seen with this position bid, uh, we are moving forward deliberately with a plan, and we're still pretty focused on pilot issues. We're going to be meeting next month, the MEC will, to refine that plan, and you can look forward to an update after that meeting. Uh, and as I said, we do anticipate a staffing update from the company in June. And if they project a furlough, part of that plan is obviously going to be strong mitigation through the language of our CBA. Well, as we start to think about wrapping up this podcast, one of the things that both of you have mentioned, kind of on a positive note that maybe I'll circle back to, is that this pilot group in particular has been through a lot in the last several years, and we have approached all of those challenges, I think, with a, a dedication to each other, a dedication to stay and build upon our unity, and we have, in each case, come out a stronger group. And maybe let's just rehash that a little bit as we wrap this up, Will. Yeah, I, I think Joe did say it best, and you did too right there, that we as a pilot group have been through a lot together, and we're going to get through this as well. Um, I would footnote that I'm encouraged by some of the good news that I think we've heard this week. Uh, it does appear that there's hope that we found the bottom as far as demand goes and that we can look to recovery from here. Uh, we're seeing an uptick in loads and daily bookings uh, industry-wide. And then even VP of Flight Ops John Ladner noted in uh, his letter to me about the, uh, the COVID MOU that we are in recovery mode. That's good. I'm glad to see that he's in a recovery mindset and not, quote-unquote, a crisis mindset, as the letter said. But let's be clear here. Currently, the industry is facing a demand problem. It's not a cost problem, and it's not a CBA problem. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that right there, I think, is a great point. And, and when you look at our, our CBA and, and uh, you know, what it was we were fighting for uh, to improve in it, as we entered into negotiations, um, we've we've already been doing our part. The company the company talks about being cash burn neutral by December, and that's a great goal for them. And no doubt it makes shareholders happy to hear that. It makes their board of directors happy to hear that. But I, I don't think the pilots need to get into the mindset that we need to do more to make sure that happens. Uh, I think we've already done a lot. Uh, we've certainly done a lot by working for in a substandard contract over the last several years, both respect to compensation and our work rules and a complete lack of, of scope language. So I, I would just caution pilots as, as they hear this uh, continuing uh, drumbeat of cash burn neutral by December that that may be management's goal, but it is not necessarily the goal of this pilot group. And is probably, uh, you know, based more on macro influences than anything that we may or may not do. Yeah, obviously our focus is on what interests the pilots and advances, you know, their needs. That has always been 
what our focus is. Before this pandemic, the airlines are making strong profits and had exercised, as you noted, their a cost discipline, especially here at Alaska, and that when demand comes back, so will the profits. And, and our job specifically as pilots in helping the company stimulate demand is to make our passengers feel safe traveling because I think when people feel safe and that it's healthy to travel again, demand will return. As I said, our, our primary focus has got to remain on taking care of each other. Uh, I wasn't kidding way back in my initial chairman's message when I said that I was given a bag sticker in my first days at United that said, it's not all about me, it's all about us. And at its core, that is exactly what unionism is. It's not just words, but it's practice. And we have got to look out for each other or we have nothing. And again, as Joe said, this group has really demonstrated incredible unity, and we're going to need to continue to do so as we move forward through this. I agree, Will. And it's it's really heartening to see all the challenges that this group has gone through. You know, we've we've got fleet changes going on. We've you know, we saw the closure of the, the JFK crew base. And, there, you know, pilots have faced a lot of challenges, personal challenges. These type of things have an impact on families, on personal lives, on finances. And and that that sort of thing, it's pretty obvious, is going to continue to go on for a while as we get through this. And so I just I think it's so important for uh, management to consider their actions very carefully and consider the effect that it has on on pilots and their families. It's it's not just numbers on a spreadsheet. These are real lives. These are real people, and uh, we want to see them, you know, be be pragmatic, but but also be thoughtful about what it is they're doing. And of course, you know, as as your elected union representatives, we're going to do everything we can to protect your careers, to protect your health and safety, and and we just can't say enough times how proud of we are of this group and. And what a fantastic bunch of pilot is, pilots uh, that you all are and, and how you take care of each other. And we, we're so happy to see that uh, continuing through this challenge as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that the professionalism that's been exhibited by this pilot group in the face of all the adversity that we've seen and all the anxiety that we've kind of pointed out in and around these bids and kind of the chaotic nature of uh, the company moving forward. The pilots have been just consummate professionals. And I think that a lot of that started, again, with the unity piece that we've demonstrated, and that's going to be how we get through it. And this is the time to keep those dialogues going. That's what underpins unity. Take the time to keep talking to one another, understand each other, whether it's senior, junior, bus, Boeing, commuter, non-commuter. We, we all learn from one another with every conversation. It's that shared perspective and the empathy that it engenders. Um, and then looking out for each other, you know, that's the key and that's how we emerge from this even stronger and better than when we started, just like we have all the other uh, tests that this pilot group has, has been presented. Absolutely. Joe, Will, thank you for coming in today and sharing your perspective. Yep, thank you very much for the opportunity. Always appreciate it.
Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for taking the time to hear this podcast and staying up to date with the emails that we're sending. One of the most important things you can do right now for building this unity that we've been speaking about is to stay informed with what your union is doing on your behalf. Well, that concludes another episode of the Alaska Pilots podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell.